It's a rising debate about the pros and cons of raising the minimum wage. And across the country, the debate has gotten heated. We're tired of surviving. We want to live. We can't even survive off of 725. For the most part, the question hasn't been whether or not a federally mandated minimum wage should exist. After all, some sort of salary floor has been in place in the U.S. since the days of FDR. The right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. But exactly where should that floor be set? And if you do raise the minimum wage, say to $15 an hour, is that a positive step for workers or a jobs killer? I'm David Bear, and on this episode of Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, we travel to Seattle to explore one simple question. Who is actually winning and who is losing in the fight for 15? And now, here's Laura Arnold with our latest Deep Dive conversation. I'm very happy to be in Seattle today for a discussion on the minimum wage. It's especially meaningful to have that discussion here in Seattle because Seattle has been at the forefront of this debate. Consider this. The federal minimum wage is $7.25, and it's been $7.25 since 2009. In contrast, until 2015, Seattle's minimum wage was $9. And in 2015, Seattle won what activists called the Fight for 15, which raised the minimum wage in Seattle from around $9 to around $15. And Seattle is not the only place that's raised the minimum wage. 29 states now have a minimum wage that's higher than the federal minimum wage. And 44 localities have established a minimum wage that is higher than the minimum wage of their state. And don't think that's solely a partisan issue. Arkansas's minimum wage, for example, is $9.25, and it's slated to increase to $11 by 2021. Missouri's minimum wage is $8.60, and it will increase to $12 by 2023. In the same year that Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill was defeated, the Missouri electorate voted to pass a referendum on a minimum wage increase. And the action isn't just at the state and local level. Earlier this year, the House of Representatives voted to raise the federal minimum wage from $7.25 to $15. The bill passed the House by a vote of 231 to 199, with no Republican support. That's all to say that these discussions are very much alive. A recent Pew survey found that two-thirds of Americans favor a $15 federal minimum wage. Now, those who favor mandatory minimum wage increases argue that a living wage is essential to address inequality. Here's a short clip from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi making that point. This is about our democracy. It's about a strong middle class. It's about fairness. It's about giving people a shot. There's no guarantee, but there's an opportunity. Now, those who oppose it argue that such a mandatory increase would actually hurt small businesses, cost us jobs, and may even hurt the very people that we're trying to help. Here's House Minority Whip Steve Scalise making that case. We're seeing wages grow right now. Our economy is booming. We are the envy of the world. And we've got more job openings than there are people looking for work. The last thing we need is the government to come in and undermine that success by passing a bill that would literally eviscerate up to 3.7 million jobs. So let's take a deep dive into the minimum wage. Let's figure out what we know, what we don't know, and the policy implications. It's an important issue for our nation, and it's one that's at the forefront of many policymakers' thinking. I'm joined today by two experts in the field who hopefully will shed light on these issues, and I hope we'll have a great conversation. Jake Vigdor is the David Evans Professor of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington and a director of the Seattle Minimum Wage Study. 
Heather Boucher is president and CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth and the former chief economist for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. Heather, Jake, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's a real treat. Heather, let's start with you. Why do you believe that raising the minimum wage is so important? Well, that's a great place to start. So I think it's really important because it's about that basic labor standard for workers that provides them with the ability to earn a safe and decent a decent standard of living for themselves and for their families. And so the living the minimum wage really makes it possible for people to have that that income that provides support in ways that just would not be possible if we didn't have the minimum wage. Um, as you said in your introduction, you know, the minimum the federal minimum wage has been stuck at 7.25 since 2009, but um, the fact that so many states the majority of states, in fact, and localities have moved forward to raise the minimum wage, I think speaks to its importance both as a policy issue and as an issue for people all across the country who believe that if you put in a fair day's work, you deserve to bring home a fair day's pay. But there's a couple other reasons why I think the minimum wage is so important. I mean, one is that in pulling families up and out of poverty and making it possible for them to support themselves, the minimum wage is a way of actually reducing government expenditures for families at the very bottom of the income spectrum. So we know that when we raise the minimum wage, then the federal government and states and localities can reduce the amount of um, subsidies that they're providing in various ways to low-income families because instead of needing help to um, afford food or other necessities, people can actually afford those basic on their earnings in the labor force. And that's both a sense of pride for people, but also is important for government budgets. The other thing that is important about the minimum wage is that there's some actually very new evidence. Um, it's very exciting, I think, that, that talks about how the minimum wage has been an important tool for reducing racial inequities. So there's some new research by a couple of scholars that talks about and that shows um, through this very detailed empirical historical analysis how um, increases in the minimum wage actually at certain points in our history have gone a long way towards closing the racial gap in earnings at the low end of the income spectrum. So really the driving principle behind the minimum wage increase is this idea of of social equality, of economic equality, of level setting so that wages and earnings parallel economic output increases and the well-being of the country. There seems to be a, a feel a feeling that there's a disconnect between how how much industry has grown and how much certain groups and individuals have, you know, accrued wealth relative to low-income people and this is one tool to explore equalizing the playing field. Jake, do you think that's a fair description? Yeah. I, a lot of the discussion you hear about the minimum wage compares the, the growth rate in, say, national income, which measures you know everybody in the economy, versus the, the growth in wages. What, what do people who just work for an hourly wage, what's happened to them economically compared to people who have investment income? And it's lagged behind. And I think that there is a general interest in trying to figure out, okay, how do we reorient the economy to do better by some of these lower earning workers? Because I think there are very few things that Republicans and Democrats agree on these days. But I think one general principle that that folks would agree on is that it's, it's good when individuals and families are able to support themselves through work. Now, Jake, you rightly mentioned that there is disagreement as to how we get there. That's not unusual in any policy argument. People have different perspectives. With respect to the minimum wage, there's actually a lot of debate 
as to whether or not this is actually, not only is it a good idea, but sort of what the consequences would be. So can you kick us off by maybe summarizing what does the research show us to date? And then I'd love for you to speak specifically as to the Seattle minimum wage study that sure. you took part in. Sure, yeah. So I guess the, the, the first thing to say, uh, it's it's important to articulate the, the concern that economists have, have historically discussed about the minimum wage, which is a lot of the businesses that are paying the lowest wages uh, have pretty low profit margins. And therefore, they can't necessarily afford to bump up everybody's pay. And so they respond by laying people off, reducing their hours, sometimes shutting down. That's the concern that's been raised theoretically. And then what what economists have been trying to do for decades now is figure out, okay, just exactly how important is that concern? Right. Does that actually happen? Yes, that's right. So, you know, the best as we can tell is that it never really looked like there were really significant losses in employment associated with raising the minimum wage. But there's no place that has ever, has ever raised the minimum wage as high as $15 an hour, uh, which made the Seattle case pretty interesting. And it so happens that when Seattle voted to raise the minimum wage, the very next thing the city council did was vote to have a study of what happened with the minimum wage. And so my colleagues Love and I, Seattle. Yeah. We love that. We, so we love empirical analysis it was, of policy solutions. It, it was, and it was a politically kind of brave thing to do as well uh, because, you know, the, the commitment was let's, let's fund a study and, you know, we just want to know the truth. What we did in Seattle, we had access to a, a data set that had better information about workers than most of the data that's used to study the minimum wage. Specifically, data in Washington state tells you how many hours everyone works for their employer. And that is sort of a blind spot in a lot of these prior studies uh, that they, they could study whether people were employed, but they couldn't study how many hours they worked. And what we found in Seattle was once the city started raising the minimum wage, the, the clearest evidence is about hours, actually. So, so a lot of the evidence we're finding suggests that people are keeping their jobs. I mean, they, they remain employed at about the same rate, but they're seeing their hours reduced. And they're seeing their hours reduced more if they're a less experienced worker. So it's, it's complicated because what we end up finding is that there is a segment of the workforce for whom the higher minimum wage leads directly to a bigger paycheck. But there's this other group that looks like they're they're not experiencing the same effects. At some wage level, I mean, maybe it's not $15, maybe it's higher, maybe it's lower, but is the whole conversation about figuring out where that number is? In, in a sense, you're right. There's a really strong reason to believe that an increase in the minimum wage is going to be relatively benign until you start pushing it above some natural limit. And then what is the natural limit? The challenge with that is that this natural limit is a moving target. So in Seattle today, large businesses have to pay $16 an hour. And if you look at the want ads, you can't see any jobs that are advertised at $16 an hour. They're all 17, 18 plus tips because we have a labor shortage here. So here in Seattle in 2019, a minimum wage of $16 an hour is no big deal. Because the cost of living is because, so high. Because the cost of living means that not very many people are trying to make a living here on the basis of low-wage work because it just can't be done. It's going to be really different in different parts of the country, and it's, it's always going to be kind of a crystal ball. And so the debates that you hear about, okay, is $15 sustainable, in the absence of really hard evidence and knowing how limited our evidence is in predicting out of sample, it ends up being a, a largely rhetorically driven debate. Heather, any thoughts? If I could, of yeah, course. I'd love to jump in here. Um, 
So one one thing that we've seen, of course, across the country is communities weighing in on what they think that right level is. And I think that's very powerful because uh, people who live in communities know what the standard of living is. They know what kind of wages seem fair and just and what you can make ends meet on. So I, you know, to some degree, uh, deferring to the political process uh, is deferring to actually a lot of information about what is happening in the labor market. Um, so I think that's a really important data point that it, we, we often fail to take into account in these conversations. There's sort of this sense that, well, golly, if we don't stop at 15, where will we stop? And yet the people making the decisions about where to put this minimum wage are elected officials who are responding to the demands of their constituents. Hey, Heather, um, can, I, can I just interrupt you there? Is it possible? You know, I could think of a lot of um, of policy areas or you know policy proposals that actually that are perhaps being promoted by some politicians and that have unintended consequences. So, is there room for an argument or a potential argument that actually this this policy initiative, in this case, the minimum wage, that you might be advocating for, actually is going to have the opposite effect to what you're intending? So, yes, maybe you'll have you'll have more money in your pocket immediately, you know, from your paycheck, but ultimately you'll be spending more money on, you know, on food and on services, or you'll have, you know, you'll risk not having a job or whatever else. Well, I think that, you know, looking at all of the research out there, I think that there's strong evidence that what we've seen is that when you raise the minimum wage at the levels at which communities have done so, it has not had uh, significant or negligible employment effects. In some cases, researchers have found positive employment effects, but it has had important effects on family earnings and well-being. And this has economy-wide effects. We know, for example, that over the past few years, um, and especially over the past year, we've seen these historically low unemployment rates. And we also know that as the unemployment rate was falling, a lot of people were very concerned that wages weren't rising. Of course, since we saw this last round of minimum wage increases go into effect, you've actually seen wages at the bottom end of the labor market start to go up. It's a direct connection between the capacity of workers to bargain at the bottom of the labor force and using the um, the power of policy to make that change that otherwise wasn't happening. I mean, I appreciate your question very much that we need to look at the data and the evidence. And when I look at the evidence, it just it doesn't seem that we've reached that point. Right, of, you're just uh, saying no that. The evidence is pointing to the fact that this is uh, overall a constructive and good thing. And in fact, you've made yeah. a you've made a point to emphasize that the no, the job losses or the number of jobs shouldn't be the only metric. Is that right? You uh, you feel that we need to take a broader view and, and think about the overall welfare of low income families and of certain communities. A hundred percent, and our economy more generally. I mean, there's no other policy in the United States where we presume that if one person loses out, we wouldn't do it. If that, if we did that, of course, we would never engage in any trade agreements or all sorts of things that we would never do. Now, I'd like to ask both of you about the recent Congressional Budget Office study in light of the House bill that was passed, uh, was passed in the House and was not passed in the Senate to, uh, to increase the minimum wage to $15. So CBO published a study this summer that tried to forecast how increasing the minimum wage would affect employment and family income. And their estimates, I'll summarize them for you, even though I'm sure that you know them like the back of your hand, but just for the sake of our listeners. CBO estimated that a $15 minimum wage would boost the wages of around 17 million workers, but 1.3 million other workers would become jobless. 
Raising the minimum wage to $12 instead of $15 would increase wages for 5 million workers, but 300,000 workers would be jobless. And if you raise the minimum wage to $10, that would raise wages for around a million and a half workers and would have little to no effect on employment. Jake, how reliable are these estimates? Do you have any reaction to them? Should we pay any attention to them? I don't envy the folks at CBO for having to engage in this exercise. It's it's part and of the few people envy you yeah. <laughs> at having to having to evaluate the Seattle minimum wage. They need to come up with numbers, but these the the numbers that you come up with are they're guesses. And they're guesses based on a, a, the read of a literature that has produced studies with a range of possible effects and they kind of split the difference uh, to some extent. And so it's they're, they're coming up with numbers that are not necessarily going to please anybody, but they're, they're completely unverifiable. We could raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and would we have the capacity to, to go back after the fact and assess whether the CBO got the numbers right? Absolutely 100% no, because we never get to observe the alternate universe where we don't raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So uh, and, uh, there's a theme in this conversation, which is that there's there's more to this discussion than does the policy harm anyone. And I, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the things that, that I take away from our analysis in Seattle, and I actually had a conversation with the folks at CBO when they were putting together these numbers, the stories that people would tell about the negative impacts of raising the minimum wage tend to focus on teenagers. I mean, it's going to be harder for teenagers to get that first job. But the stories that people tell in support of a higher minimum wage tend not to focus on teenagers. Uh, They are stories about parents and adults trying to support themselves. And the evidence that we've got here in Seattle suggests that both stories have some truth to them, that we see that more experienced workers, people who are more attached to the labor market, are coming out ahead. Where there are losses, they seem to be concentrated amongst people looking for their first job or people who just barely have their first job. So it's entirely consistent with the messaging that this is this is increasing the incomes of families in poverty because those are the workers who are coming out ahead. And then the, the teenagers or the, the inexperienced workers who are maybe already in a household that has one or two decent incomes in it, and so their job is not going to be what pushes the family over the poverty line, That seems to be a decent assessment of how things have have played out in Seattle, which suggests that we may see these these numbers suggesting that there's gains for some and losses for others. But what's really important to understand is who the winners are and who the losers are. And if it's a pattern where the families in poverty are the winners and the teenagers are now having to take unpaid internships instead of a first job, you know, maybe the world will be okay. Let's address a few of the more notable criticisms of the minimum wage that we haven't we haven't yet tackled. So some critics argue that raising the minimum wage is essentially a food tax. The argument being that a lot of minimum wage workers are employed in different aspects of the food industry from production to food service and when we raise wages all we're doing is passing along we'll pass along those costs to the employers who then pass them right back onto us as consumers. Higher food prices of course disproportionately harm low wage families and this in the eyes of some would offset any gains that they may receive from higher wages. Jake, is that a valid concern? You know, it's a concern that that I might have had at one point in time, um, but having done a a lot of work, uh, one of the things we did here in Seattle is tried to track what was happening to grocery prices. 
And so we had teams of research assistants go out into grocery stores in all different parts of town and also in some control locations in the suburbs to see whether we could measure any impact on grocery prices. And we never found anything. And I think a large part of that is when you think about the the process that gets food out of farms and into grocery stores, labor is a small component of the cost there. And so raising the cost of labor is is not that big a deal. I was down in Northern California about a year and a half ago talking to some folks who work in sort of almond growing country there. And for them, the increases in, in California's minimum wage were not the biggest concern for them. The biggest concern was they couldn't find anybody to, to do the harvesting work for them. Uh, they were paying above the minimum uh, just to bring anybody in. So the drivers of, of things like the cost of groceries in stores uh, is driven largely by what's happening with crops. Uh, it doesn't have that much to do with labor. It's a little bit different when we talk about restaurant meals because rest- preparing and serving a restaurant meal does require more labor than, than just getting a pork chop at the grocery store. And so there are efforts to track prices in restaurants did pick up a little bit more. And there, are some, there have been many other studies of looking at how minimum wage increases affect restaurant prices. And I've seen uh, some studies that have suggested that, that the entirety of the cost is passed along to consumers and it ends up not being that big a cost. So, so it's not something material. It's not it's, a material concern. It, it doesn't seem like it's it's having that much of an effect, but it's it's certainly true that when we go out and talk to workers about how they feel about the minimum wage, when they see prices going up, and this is especially salient in Seattle, they attribute that to the minimum wage going up. Now, it's it's not necessarily an accurate attribution as far as our research can tell. But we can't stop people from making it. It's one of the things that people state as a fear, that the rising minimum wage increases the cost of gas, increases rent. All things that we've tried to, to check out with our research, and we haven't found any evidence of any of that. Right, but, but, it, but it's, it's still something out there. that worries people. Heather, something else that's uh, still out there is the argument that the minimum, any minimum wage increase will disproportionately harm small businesses. Any policy concerns? Well, I think that is, that's certainly something that we hear a lot about. I think the question is, what is the way that we think about the role of small businesses in our economy? What is and um, what are our expectations of the kinds of jobs that we expect those businesses to provide? What are the what's the bottom line? And, you know, if a small business can't figure out how to have a business model that can move forward with raising wages for its most poorly paid workers. You know, what does that mean for that community, for that business model, for that for that business owner? I mean, what we see is that a lot of these um, disproportionately, and we see minimum wage workers working in all different kinds of businesses, so not just big or small. So I often feel that the that the focus on the small businesses is a little bit overemphasizing one aspect of the economy. But we also know that uh, small businesses tend to pay lower wages overall. And, you know, that is a cost for the rest of us. I mean, again, you know, workers who are earning extremely low wages and, you know, and we know in places... Um, many workers who uh, even make the minimum wage are eligible for government subsidies. You know, to what extent does the public want to be subsidizing small businesses through their income tax credit or food stamps or Medicaid? Uh, we may all decide that entrepreneurship in that kind of labor market is in that in the low end market is so important that we want to do that. But I feel like that's a conversation that we as a society should be having. We should also be um, finding ways to make it easier for small businesses to manage some 
some of those bigger costs like healthcare, which if we could figure out a different way to help them afford healthcare for their employees, that might make it easier for them to offer higher wages. So let's uh, let's talk again a bit about the federal minimum wage. Uh, when I was reading the data and preparing for this podcast, I was struck by the number of, of workers that would actually be affected by the federal minimum wage. So according to the Department of Labor, only 0.28% of 156 million U.S. workers earned the federal minimum wage last year. And most of those employees were younger than age 25. So Heather, as a practical matter, why is it so important to raise the minimum wage if it doesn't affect that many people? Is it more about the signal? So I think one is the signaling, um, the sense that we shouldn't be leaving people behind, especially in a country that continues to be one of the richest countries per capita that the world has ever seen. It does make sense for us to figure out how to make work pay. I think it's also about uh, making sure that you, as you as you create that floor for wages, it's important to recognize that whenever we raise the minimum wage or we're talking about it, it isn't just those workers that, um, who earn the minimum wage who are affected. It's those workers up the spread who earn a little bit more. So, you know, the minimum wage goes up and all those workers making the minimum wage get a raise, but so do all those people um, who earn a little bit more. So you often see in this new study that um, just came out in the, uh, in the quarter of Journal of Economics, they talk about how the spread of the minimum wage goes all the way up to about the 15th percentile. Do you both think it makes sense to think about this issue more locally? When uh, when we're discussing the federal minimum wage, there's, uh, I think, some, some centrists, some, uh, some of the folks who are looking at bipartisan solutions really have focused on this question of maybe maybe the thing to do is to divide the country into regions, understand that different, you know, a pancakes and bacon cost more in Seattle than probably anywhere else, but certainly than in Tampa, Florida, or in uh, Houston, Texas, where I'm from. So should, if we are pursuing this idea of a federal minimum wage, Jake, do you think it makes sense to have different minimum wages on a regional basis and construct some sort of, you know, benchmark, national, sort of, some national benchmark, and then have some derivations of that benchmark for different regions? Yeah. If you go back to the the first minimum wage that was implemented in the United States, uh, Oregon, about 100 years ago, the minimum wage was set by a local commission. The state had a commission to determine what the wage was, and they say it was a minimum weekly wage, and they figured it out by figure, by calculating what the cost of living was and setting the minimum weekly wage equal to that weekly cost of living. What we've been talking about a lot today is this notion that everybody agrees that it's 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 a good thing when people support themselves through work. And supporting yourself means facing the local cost of living. And the local cost of living does vary a lot, as you noted. So tying the minimum wage to what the local cost of living are makes some sense. Now, one of the things that might do, you might it might lead to a, dis, a situation where the minimum wage is lower in Mississippi than it is in Seattle. And if your goal is to sort of increase the living standards in Mississippi relative to Seattle, then maybe you don't want that to happen. Um, but at the same time, the, the differences in, in minimum wages, if to the extent that they exist, and they do exist today, it does provide employers an incentive to shift their operations to parts of the country where the cost of living is lower, which is something that makes sense as an outcome as well. I mean, there, there are a lot of people who would tell you, we don't need more jobs to move to Seattle these days because it costs too much and it's too crowded. And so policy levers that sort of shift economic production to places where the cost of that production is lower are sensible. 
I have one last enormous question for both of you, and I'll give you one minute to answer it, so you will you will be sure to express your animosity toward me later. Um, <laughs> so the reason to explore the minimum wage is because we want to foster opportunity, foster equality for all Americans. I think we all agree with that. So we all agree on the objective, I think. Is raising the minimum wage the most effective anti-poverty tool? Why not focus more energy on the earned income tax credit or on some of these other interventions that economists have, have I think, quite you know persuasively argued can move the needle and incentivize the kind of behavior that we, um, that we want to incentivize as a country and also more adequately target households that are in poverty. So you don't, you know, you don't have the issue of the teenager who has, you know, the middle class family who, you know, loses the job at the fast food restaurant. Uh, Jake, you want to take that on and then I'll give Heather her minute? I think there's, there's this political thing, which is you can put the minimum wage on the ballot in states like Arkansas and Arizona and voters will support it. And so I think in, in spite of the fact that, that economists will sit around a table and talk about the, the various incentive effects of, of the earned income tax credit, putting the earned income tax credit on a state ballot is not necessarily <laughs> going to create the same kind of enthusiasm. And this is actually uh, – I, I had a conversation a little while ago with a faculty colleague who uh, runs the, the labor center here, the Bridges Center. And he said that, that the, the idea behind the minimum wage is that it's, it's – not necessarily the policy that everybody thinks will have the most beneficial impact, but it's one that voters will get behind. And so if And there's if, some value to that. If you, that's yeah. if that's the, the, the train that people are willing to ride, then you know that's that's the train we're gonna we're gonna That's take. an enormously practical answer from an academic. <laughs> uh, Heather, uh, what's uh, what's your view? Well, important as I think the minimum wage is and the other policies that you just listed, I actually think that one of the most important things that we could do to increase wages and living standards for workers would be to address their lack of bargaining power relative um, to the rise of concentrated wealth and the rise of market concentration across our economy. You know, it is now the case that among private sector workers people who are in unions are a smaller share of workers in the private sector than they were before we made the right to collectively bargain legal in the 1930s. So we have come a, a long way uh, back to before we started in terms of workers having that, uh, being able to have that balance against their ability to to bargain on their own behalf for raising wages. Um, and we know that in communities that have strong unions, that does a lot to boost wages, not just for the not just for the union members, but for people all across those communities. And so I think that's important. And I'm not actually recommending we go back to what we had. There's a lot of work being done that thinks about new ways um, to give workers in all different kinds of ways um, greater capacity to bargain over wages. Everything from putting workers on boards to sectoral bargaining and a, a lot of different things in between. And, you know, the minimum wage is a floor. But on top of that is people's ability to be able to go to their boss and say, hey, I'm adding productive value to this firm. How can I make sure that I'm able to, to garner those gains? Um, and people need to be able to have community to, to make those asks. And I think taking steps to make that easier for workers would be uh, my number one goal in this particular area. Well, I think it's clear that uh, we all share a, an ambitious goal of creating a better tomorrow for 
all of our citizens. And I am so thankful to both of you for being with us today, for sharing your insights on this complicated but important issue. And I'll look forward to continuing the conversation. So, Jake, Heather, thank you so much for being on Deep Dive. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. Thanks, Laura. It's been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, produced by the Arnold Ventures Philanthropy. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, visit arnoldventures.org. By maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice, we make change for the greater good. Again, that website is arnoldventures.org. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you again next time on Deep Dive.